As we come to God's word, let us uh, bow our heads in prayer. We ask your help now, our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, that you open the eyes of our understanding, that we may see the truths contained therein. Please be our teacher, convict us of the truth, convict us of any sin or any wrong attitude that we may have towards you and each other. Please enable us to avoid distractions and to focus on your word. Glorify yourself in all our lives, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Carla Faye Tucker was 23 years old in June 1983 when she and her boyfriend broke into a Houston home in order to case the house for robbery. High on drugs, drugs for days, Tucker and Garrett, her partner, ran into a couple in the home and murdered them with a hammer and a pickaxe. Both bodies had more than 20 stab wounds. Following their trial and conviction, each received the death sentence. Garrett died in prison in 1993, but Tucker remained on death row for many more years. Carla Frey Tucker, her story is more than just one of senseless homicide because three months after her imprisonment, she became a Christian. A puppet ministry team came to her cell block And since everyone else was going, she joined the crowd out of boredom. She stole the Bible at the meeting, not knowing that they were free. Later that night, she submitted her heart to Jesus. When I did this, Carla wrote later, the full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. I realised for the first time that night what I had done. I began crying that night for the first time in many years. And to this day, tears are part of my life. The transformation of Carla's life was tangible. Christ was alive in her. For over 14 years, she was a powerful Christian presence in prison. Her life was gripped by horror of what she had done, yet her life was marked by the radiant joy of experiencing Jesus' forgiveness. Today, we're going to consider another woman who committed a capital crime, a crime punishable then by the death penalty. We do not know the ongoing effect of this woman's encounter with Jesus, but we do know she was forgiven of her capital offence by Jesus. Can the sins of murder and adultery be forgiven? Can your sin be forgiven? There's a big difference between forgiveness and the consequences of our sin. If you're using the NIV Bible or another modern translation, you'll have noticed the statement or the footnote saying something like this. The earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have this particular passage written in them. From this statement, the question arises then, is this section of John's Gospel, Scripture, or not? Some commentators have concluded that it is not, and so simply skip over the verses altogether. So, should this passage be in our Bible or not? Is Scripture, is it Scripture, or is it a made-up story? This is a a somewhat technical question, but does need to be settled. So I'll now try to briefly summarise the issues before we look at the passage. I actually complained to Paul that he's given me one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel of John to deal with because of this particular problem with the footnote. So with the rise of a a modern skill that uh, is called textual, textual criticism, if you've been to Bible college, you've probably encountered that kind of thing as well. Uh, we now have, of course, in our possession over 5,000 uh, Greek manuscripts 
or parts thereof that we can consult and compare. So these textual, textual critics, critics look at these manuscripts and compare them and because they have so many, they can determine what are true scriptures, what are there in the originals and what have been added or changed over a period of time. So our Bibles now are more accurate than they've ever been except for the original manuscripts that were written by the original writers. To cut a long and often complicated story short, these textual experts have clearly shown that our passage were not written, was not written by the Apostle John. It's a completely different writing style and expressions. It wasn't a part of his original gospel. However, most conservative scholars believe it is still part of inspired scripture. So it's a bit of a problem, isn't it? There are currently no available Greek manuscripts containing this passage dated before the 9th century. So you're talking about here something like 800 years almost between the original manuscripts when they were compiled and the ones that actually contain this particular passage. These later Greek manuscripts have inserted this passage that we're looking at today in five different locations in the New Testament. I think it's three in John's Gospel and two in Luke's Gospel. That being said, there are non-Greek manuscripts that contain this passage, dating right back until around 350 AD when they started to find them in other documents, mostly what we will call Latin, but there are other documents, other manuscripts from Ethiopia and North Africa and places like that as well. So great names in church history like Ambrose, I don't know if any of you have ever studied church history, but he's a well-known person. He died around 397 AD, so you can see the date goes right back. He refers to this passage, as does Augustine and Jerome, who believed it to be a part of Scripture. So Jerome, another famous person in church history, he claimed to have seen this passage in three different early Greek manuscripts. But unfortunately, we don't have those manuscripts today. Never mind. Jerome was uh, the early church father who in 382 translated the Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible into the main language of the day known to us as Latin. He included our passage in the Latin Vulgate Bible and therefore it was accepted by the Catholic Church uh, throughout the world uh, right up until the time of the Reformation. So it's a fairly well established um, time period that this was accepted as scripture. This is why the King James or Authorised Version and other early translations included this passage in their text along with the Apocrypha because that's what was included in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin version of the scriptures. Uh, Erasmus, uh, who exercised his ministry around the time of the Reformation, um, he had collected <coughs> over a period of time seven, <coughs> pardon me, seven different uh, Greek manuscripts on which he based the King James translation or the translators of the King James based that. So only seven. We have over 5,000 manuscripts today. So that helps you to understand something of the, the technicalities of this passage. One commentator suggests that this passage was removed from the original position in the New Testament because some conservative leaders in the early church believed that it downgraded the seriousness of adultery as a sin and encouraged unfaithfulness in marriage. So that early period from you know, 30 AD or wherever the, the Gospels were first started to be written down, some of the church leaders said we shouldn't keep this in the passage because it leads to immorality. But most conservative scholars believe that this passage 
was part of what is called oral or verbal-based teaching about the life and ministry of Jesus. Much of this oral teaching found its way into the Gospel accounts as these were compiled and written down, being completed before AD 70. It seems that these scribes who copied the scriptures firmly believed that this passage was a faithful rendition of an event in the life of Jesus but did not quite know where to include it in the copies of scripture. I'm currently writing a book on a letter in the New Testament. You probably can't guess what book that would be. But every now and then uh, I've just about completed one part of the book and every now and then, like the other day, I was reading in Hebrews and came across a verse that was talking about the same thing that was in James. So I went to my notes and found where I was teaching about that in my, reading, writing about it in my book. I thought, now I need to put it in, in, in this section. So the Gospel writers were doing the same kind of thing. Um, they had to find all the teaching of Jesus which was shared orally, so verbally passed on, because many people in those days uh, were not literate and so that's the kind of thing they would do. They would say, well, let's, we've got a whole lot of parables and you see this in John's Gospel and you get parable after parable. So they said, well, these are the parables of Jesus. We think they happen about here, so we'll put them in there. And of course... Um, this is what happened as they compiled the, the scriptures particularly. Um, Luke in particular, who was a, a Gentile background, gathered information from first-hand witnesses. Most had probably given him their recollections uh, verbally, the things they'd heard. He may have also had access to the other written gospels at that stage or certainly the early stages of, of those gospels being compiled. I've also done some research into the life of my father, and was able to obtain a, um, a record of his military service. Uh, from this I could construct a timeline of his life or the things that happened while he was uh, serving in the Australian military. He was a commando and so there's a, a lot of big long gap, uh, just about 18 months where no records have been included in his file. And so I have a similar problem because uh, Dad, when he had a few whiskies under his belt, used to talk quite truly about his war experiences. He talked to me and he talked to the other, uh, my other children, grandchildren, his grandchildren. And so some of these events were actually uh, dated. We knew where they happened. He said, while I was in Townsville, I did this. And, but others are just stories he told about his experiences in, in the jungle. And so in, in order to write this book, and I've started it, but I'm sort of now focusing more on writing about James, um, we had these stories to put together and this is a similar problem that the apostles had. They had these stories and they had to put them together. Now some of these stories I think well where am I going to put this? Did this happen here or there? Was this on his third trip up into the islands? Or uh, That's exactly the same sort of problem that they had. Uh, also you've got variations in the Gospels. Uh, some atheists criticise Christianity and say well John said this but Luke says this and Matthew doesn't say it. What's the truth here? Well, if you talk to Alison, my old, uh, second oldest daughter, and you talk to Sharon, they've got different stories because they stayed with my pop, their pop, several different times. Sometimes they got a longer version of the story than others. So what you do is put them together, and that's what we have in these uh, gospel accounts. So did this event take place? I think certainly it did. I think that's the general consensus of, of the conservative theologians that it belongs in Scripture, we're just not quite sure where it should be placed. And so I'm going to proceed now to work on the passage with you on the basis of yes, it is scripture, 
No, it wasn't written by John, but it's still a true account of an event in the life of Jesus. So let's turn to our passage. Jesus' teaching interrupted. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 6a. <clears throat> but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. <clears throat> the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and, he said, to Je- and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. And what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus regularly taught people in the temple courts, particularly at the time of the feasts. And if you look, remember back to last week, it was the Feast of the Tabernacles or Tents. And so that's why this passage has been put in here because the location is the same. So an attempt had been made, as we saw last week back in John 7 verse 30, to, uh, to uh, arrest Jesus, to seize him. Uh, they actually, in John 7 verse 44, they sent soldiers, military people, to try and arrest him. Remember, we saw that last week as well. So now here we have a third attempt, really, to trick up Jesus. Uh, they've interrupted his teaching in a rather dramatic attempt to trap him into breaking the Jewish Old Testament law. That way they would have grounds on which to prosecute him. They had somehow caught a woman in the very act of committing adultery. One wonders if she, in fact, had been trapped by them as they were trying to trap Jesus. The Old Testament, of course, prohibited adultery. In Deuteronomy 24.10 it says that both the man and the woman committing adultery must be put to death. The normal mode of execution for this crime was strangulation. The reference to stoning is based on Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24, where the penalty of stoning is applied to the case of adultery based on an engaged woman engaging in sex with a man other than her future husband. In such cases as this, the execution was to be by public stoning. But the law was specific. Both the man and the woman committing adultery were to be executed. These religious teachers of the law were actually misquoting the law by leaving out the reference to the man involved also being stoned. Where is the man? Why do they only bring the woman? We should be deeply troubled that the Pharisees have decided, for whatever reason, not to drag both the woman and the man before Jesus. Many societies have a higher tolerance of male misconduct than female misconduct. Maybe that's it. Did they know the man? Had the adultery been going on and been known by them for some time? Had the woman been set up by them and an agreement made with the man to let him go free provided they could trap the woman? We don't really know. This certainly appears to be a case of entrapment and biased treatment of the woman. Even so, she is clearly guilty having been caught in the very act and she does not try to claim her innocence at all. The Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to judge her guilty, but as Jesus would later say in John 12, verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. It would seem that these Jewish leaders had forgotten the Old Testament teaching about forgiveness experienced by the people of Israel over and over again. They seem to have forgotten that their greatest king, David, had been forgiven the sins of murder and adultery, even if he had to live with the consequences of those sins. 
Jesus knows the heart of mankind. He knows their hypocrisy and he knows that evil plan to try and trap him. If he applies his teaching about love and forgiveness and says, show her mercy and grace, let her go free, he will be accused of breaking the Old Testament law and they could arrest him and put him on trial. That was their purpose. But if he says, execute her, he may have been referred to the Roman authorities for unlawfully executing a citizen, although history tells us the Jews were actually allowed to carry out stonings, provided they were carried out inside the temple and, of course, for justifiable reasons. The stoning of Stephen is an example of this. What would you do if you were in Jesus' place? What does Jesus do? What did Jesus write on the ground? John 8, verses 6b to 8. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If anyone of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What would Jesus do? He certainly did not do what they wanted him to do. Have you experienced that? Being pressured by others to act in a certain way? To commit a sin you know is wrong? Have you yielded or have you refused to be manipulated by peer pressure, just like Jesus did? They wanted him to take the role of judge and condemn the sinner to death or practice his own teaching about forgiveness and grace and so be seen as one who taught people not to practice the law of Moses. Either way, they had him trapped, or so they thought. What did Jesus do? He ignored them. He did not stand and announce his ruling on the case. He didn't act as judge, in other words. He didn't declare his judgment. He refused their their request to act as a judge. Do you accept, sorry, did they accept his refusal not to be manipulated? No. They kept right on questioning him until he responded. The $64,000 question, has it occurred to you? What did Jesus write on the ground? Yeah, the short answer is we don't know and we have no way of knowing until we get to heaven and we're going to ask probably. It's on our list of questions we want resolved. Well, there have been a number of creative suggestions made over the years, so let me list a couple of them. Some suggest that just as God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone using his finger, so Jesus was doing the same. Some people think he was just doodling to show his lack of interest in their deception. Others, another suggestion is that he wrote a list of sins he knew their accusers were guilty of, resulting in their embarrassment and guilt. Perhaps he started with, thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not covet, or lie. Is there anyone here who's not broken this law? If I asked you to leave if you've broken these laws, it wouldn't take too long, would it, to empty the building? Could you qualify to cast the first stone? No, none of us do. Would you have to leave in the presence of the Holy Jesus? I think the best suggestion that's been made as to what he wrote is in verse 8. It says, he probably wrote this, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. We don't really know. The words of Jesus in Matthew 7 verses 3 to 5 come to mind. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your eye, own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye 
and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Conviction of sin, John 8 verse 9. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Later in Luke's Gospel, uh, John speaks about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 7 to 8. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regarding to sin and righteousness and judgment. Why did they begin to go away? They were convicted by the words of Jesus. They were convicted by their own sin. I think they were convicted by the Holy Spirit who, has the, who was the power behind the ministry and the words of Jesus. One commentator makes this statement. His response, it is Jesus' response to their insistent demand for some verdict is spiritually devastating for these Pharisees. He who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Suddenly, what they have attempted to make a legal issue is seen as deeply personal moral matter, a deeply personal moral matter. A group of proud, righteous men now find themselves on the same ground as the woman they are about to stone. Their pious armour has been pierced as each one faces the depths of his own sinful nature. Each has to deal with the inner darkness which is so closely intertwined with their self-righteous legalism. Why the older ones first? We'll come to the next seniors group and ask the group to give you an answer. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? Ask old people. Uh, They have lived and sinned therefore longer and generally their hearts, and I say generally, their hearts, in their hearts they know they're far from being perfect. No longer, uh, sorry, the longer you live, the more you have sinned, the more there is to be convicted of. But, of course, just being in the presence of the Holy Jesus is enough to bring conviction of sin into the hardest hearts of rebellion. Are you sensitive to the conviction of sin? If I said to you today, if you are without sin, you can stay here. If not, you must leave. We've already talked about it. The place would empty pretty quick, wouldn't it? Thank God for the mercy and grace and forgiveness that we receive in the Lord Jesus. Sin forgiven, John 8, verses 10 through to 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Aren't they just wonderful words? Then neither do I condemn you. He neither minimises nor covers up her sin, but he does forgive her sin. Have you heard those words spoken to your heart by Jesus? Neither do I condemn you. Have you had your sins forgiven? Even the sin of adultery is forgivable. If you are saying in your heart, that's not right, that's not just, Jesus is going against the law, maybe you are ignorant about mercy and grace as well. One commentator I read that Jesus did not actually say to the woman, your sins are forgiven. I think he's missing the point of the passage. Notice the three things that occur in Matthew 9 verses 5 to 8. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? 
but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. First notice, which is easier to say, neither do I condemn you, go and leave your sin, or to say your sins are forgiven. Secondly, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Thirdly, our response should also be to be filled with awe and praise of God when someone is forgiven, not criticised. Have you heard in your heart those wonderful words from the lips of Jesus? Your sins are forgiven. Go now and leave your life of sin. The woman cannot, the woman couldn't earn her forgiveness, but Jesus does command her, go now and leave your life of sin. This speaks to us of repentance, a change of lifestyle and attitude. If you really are forgiven, you will change how you live. Not to earn your forgiveness, but to show some appreciation of having been shown mercy and grace. Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of some sin that you are guilty of? Do you need to heed the words of Jesus and now leave your life of sin? John, sorry, 1 John 1 verses 8 to 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and, forgive us, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In 1997, the date was set for Carla Fay's execution, February 3rd, 1998. At once she was a media sensation. Was her conversion real? Would Texas execute its first woman since the Civil War? On January 14th, 1998, Carla Fay was interviewed by Larry King on CNN. King tried to exploit the gruesome details of the 1983 murder and could not believe that this was anything more than a fake jailhouse conversion. Perplexed by her positive attitude, weeks before her death, King asked, you have to explain to me a little more. It can't just be God. Carla Fay responded simply, yes it can. It's called the joy of the Lord. Tough questions pressed Carla Fay to explain her feelings about the impending execution. She said she was calm and peaceful. She hoped that the families of her victims would see her love and forgive her. Her only regret was that she could not continue a life of ministry within the American prison system. She did not live a day without reflecting on her sin and on God's forgiveness. She did not deny the crime any more than the woman caught in adultery denied her wrongdoing. In each case, the possibility of freedom from sin were the result, not the threat of law, but forgiveness and love. Carla Fay was a changed person and she demonstrated that change for 14 years. The woman caught in adultery would be changed too because Christ set her free. Sadly, the parallel stops there. 
Jesus understood the power of grace and released the woman. The state of Texas did not. Final appeals to the governor of Texas, George W. Bush, were fruitless. On February 3, 1998, in Gatesway, Texas, Carla Faye Tucker was executed by lethal injection. Her final words spoke of love and forgiveness. She was forgiven, but she still suffered the consequences of her terrible sin. Would you have forgiven Carla Faye Tucker? Would you have forgiven the woman caught in adultery? Have you had your sins forgiven? Are you complaining about the consequences of your sin? Do you know the power of forgiveness and love? Are you calm and peaceful as you face eternity? Do you know the joy of the Lord even as you live with the consequences of sin in a fallen world? Are you going to obey the command of Jesus to go and sin no more? Let me lead you in prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus who has made possible the forgiveness of our sins. We're being encouraged by the story of Carla Fay and the woman caught in adultery. We thank you that even the sins of murder and adultery are forgivable if we are prepared to confess and repent of them. We pray that your Holy Spirit will work powerfully among the thousands of people who find themselves in prison as a consequence of their sin. Help us, we pray, to draw upon your joy as we struggle with the many consequences of our past sins and sin. Please forgive our self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude that so often rears its ugly head when we see the gross sin of others. Enable us to forgive those who have sinned against us, just as you in Christ have forgiven us. We thank you that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. We thank you for this great love in his name. Amen.